You're listening to the New York Public Library podcast. I'm Aiden Flax Clark, and I'm being laughed at by someone sitting right across from me whose name is Gwen Glazer. <laughs> I'm not really laughing at you. It's just like you immediately flipped into like professional podcast mode, mm. and I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Gwen is a, a librarian in the Reader Services Unit. Is that right? That is correct. I like the use of the word unit. In Thank that. you. Yeah. We used to say department, but I like unit better. Gwen is also the host of the library's other podcast, The Librarian Is In. Sorry, uh, co-host, right? So yes, I'm the co-host. There are two of us. Um, Frank Calarius is my better half, some might say. And we our tagline is books, culture, and what to read next. So we really focus on book recommendations and talking to people both inside and outside the library who have really interesting jobs, mostly book-centered stuff. Um, so it's really fun. And I think it's kind of like a little peek at what goes on in the library and lots of talks about books. Yeah, it's delightful and also much sillier than this show, I would it say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is sillier. I was saying beforehand that we refer to this podcast as the other podcast. Right. So that makes you the other, other podcast. Right. Or makes you the other, other podcast. <laughs> All right. This is a snake eating its tail. <laughs> if you're interested in The Librarian is In, um, you're welcome to go to iTunes and subscribe. You can go to nypl.org slash podcast and take a look at our episodes and see if there's something you might like there. You will find something you like. I'm positive. Oh, thank you. So the other reason that you are here, Gwen, is because you and I were on this selection committee for a prize that the library gives out called the Bernstein Prize. Yes. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Bernstein Award is a prize that the library gives out every year to working journalists who write books of investigative journalism. So just like we did last year on the podcast, we're interviewing the five finalists on the show again this year. And Gwen and I got to talk to one of the finalists, Sheila Kolhatkar, whose book is called Black Edge. Yeah. And Black Edge is was definitely one of my favorite books that we read for the committee this year. Um, Sheila Kolhatkar is a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's a finance reporter. Um, she used to work at Bloomberg and she also used to work for a hedge fund. So she has a really interesting kind of insider view on insider trading. Which happens to be the subject of her book. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, it does. And it is just an absolutely fascinating read. Um, I think part of the reason that I got to be involved in this conversation is because I also recommended this book on the other podcast. No, I didn't know that. Um, I did. It, it's such a great read, sort of regardless of your background. She does an amazing job kind of laying out the landscape of the sort of insider trading scene around 2009, I believe, is when the book kind of picks up and then it goes through several years of the story about this particular hedge fund, which is run by a man named Stephen Cohen, um, who becomes this kind of larger than life figure in the book um, and in, I think, the world of hedge funds as well. Yeah, he ran a hedge fund called SAC Capital that managed billions and billions of dollars. I think when it started in the 90s, it managed like $23 million. And 20 years later, it was like $15 billion. Mm -hmm. And the company was at the center of, I think, the was the biggest insider trading scandal in history, right? Yeah. It was right. worth almost a billion dollars. And Sheila Kolhatkar manages to talk to so many people um, who are really intimately involved in this and really kind of give you this view of the whole story that makes it just feel incredibly important, incredibly interesting. Um, it's just a really great book. And the title refers to it's jargon in finance. And um, I actually pulled a quote from the book about it because I really liked it. She calls Black Edge is information that's proprietary, non-public, certain to move markets, and obviously illegal. <laughs> nice. I think the best thing about it is that it reads like a thriller. Mm -hmm. So it's a true story, but it feels like you're inside a detective novel or something like that. Right. Right. And I feel like we read a lot of really great nonfiction this year, but a lot of it felt dutiful in mm. a way that I think this book doesn't. Yeah, there's no slogging in right, Black Edge. Exactly. There is no slogging. There's a lot of page turning. So great. Here is our conversation with Sheila Kolhatkar. I want to ask you just like a couple questions about Stephen Cohen himself. Um, one thing that is really striking about him early on is that you say he's like, wasn't that good at math, didn't have like any seemingly you know, special knowledge of the stock, mar stock market. He was just really good at investing. Um, what distinguished or distinguishes him as an investor? People used to say, oh, he's the greatest trader of his generation. And on Wall Street, this was a big compliment because if you're a trader, that means you're just like a swashbuckling gambler and you're out there buying and selling every day. And, 
You know, there's kind of a glamour to it. My sense from what I've learned about him is that he he did have a gift for this. It's not easy to do this, partly because you have to make really quick decisions a lot of the time. You don't always have time. When you're doing the kind of trading he's doing, which is this like a rapid in and out, uh, it was buying and selling all day long. He's not a long-term investor. You know, there are people who will really research a company for a long time and then they'll buy, a state, you know, like Warren Buffett. And right. then they just hold it for years and they want to watch that company grow. And, you know, that is not Steve Cohen's thing. He's he's a speculator. He's a He trades on events. He wants to make money off his trades in a short-term way. And um, you have to have a strong stomach if you're going to do that because uh, – you can lose money very quickly and easily, and you need to know when to get out of something. If, if, if something you thought was a good idea 10 minutes ago suddenly is a horrible idea, you need to have the fortitude to change and sell. And it's really hard for a lot of people to do that. Once, um, once something you bought is sort of below what you paid for it, it's, it's a psychological burden. It's really difficult to then accept, I'm going to lose money, I'm going to sell it now before it goes lower. And I will have locked in this loss on this thing. It, it, it's like a real kind of a battle with your ego. So you have to be comfortable taking risk. That is that is an interesting thing. And I personally am not comfortable with that, and which is why I was not a very good <laughs> uh, hedge fund analyst. I'm much more the nerdy, thoughtful, worrier type. Like I, I ruminate. I want to learn everything about something before People at I libraries don't. can't relate to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure this will be very familiar to the people here. Um, That's so fascinating because you, yeah. you think of them as the most egotistical people possible, that like there could be no one more egotistical than Stephen Cohen. And then you saying that, that like you have to be able to turn on a dime and just not second guess yourself, but reverse your own actions. Like that's really fascinating. It's emotional. Yeah. It is emotional being a trader. So, so actually the people who are the best at it are the ones who are able to keep their emotions in check. I mean, that is one of the the biggest attributes for really like a short-term trader. And Steve Cohen, um, I think he did have a talent for finding other people who were good at this. And he was often, you know, he had, he developed different ways of screening people for their appetite or their ability to live with risk. And he would, and this is why he liked athletes too. They were really competitive. Um, you know, they would often, you know, they'd have these like really high stakes games. And then, you know, if they lost, they would have to learn how to bounce back from that. Um, and he would always ask people in interviews, oh, you know, tell me about a time you took a lot of risk and how you handled it. So this was this was something he was good at, but I, I do think he had an extraordinary gift himself, and um, would have been. I think he would have been and was, I'm sure, for years uh, successful without having this type of thing go on. Mm -hmm. He didn't need to do this or allow this to happen at his company uh, in order to be successful. So why do you think he did? Well, that's a that's a very key question. I don't have a good <laughs> answer to it, I'm afraid. But um, I, I I think um, my sense of his personality is that he was and probably still is very uh, fixated on the idea of winning. Winning is really important to him. Um, I mean, I think more so than most people. I mean, he has like a genetic anomaly that causes him to be obsessed with this, and he just couldn't accept not not winning in every transaction he was involved in. Um, I mean, greed is obviously a very powerful factor. it's 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 a, it's a familiar one, but um, but beyond that, i don't I don't know. Uh, there is still a lot of mystery for me about why people did some of these things. A lot of people with uh, tremendous advantages in life, some of the best educations money can buy. It made me sad to see all of these sort of obviously very intellectually capable, you know, Ivy League educated, went to the best schools, young guys devoting their lives to trying to figure out whether Dell's earnings were going to be one penny above the estimates on Wall Street or one penny below. And they would spend months trying to figure this out and then like place a bet on it. But and it then seems if, like a lot of that was them like not devoting themselves to the question of like this or that stock, but like devoting themselves to him. Like he had a cult of personality thing going on big time, it seems like. He did. He absolutely did. And um, part of it was pleasing him. And uh, But part of the reason they were doing that is because they wanted to make a lot of money 
it was not a career or a, a firm you went to for spiritual fulfillment. <laughs> no. You went there to make a lot of dough very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I think money is important and I like it as much as the next person. But it was always hard for me to relate to the singular focus on that that these people had. And um, that the way Steve Cohen set up his firm was was incentivized this type of behavior. I mean, it was sort of like if you achieve a certain result, there's going to be an enormous monetary reward for you. If you don't achieve that result, I'm going to fire you in a humiliating way. And um, don't tell me what you have to do to get there. You know, I mean, it's basically like if there's an incentive in place to, that's going to incentivize a certain behavior, people are going to do that thing. Even if you, you've written down somewhere that you're not supposed to break XYZ rules, you need to set up your incentives mm-hmm. to drive the, the behavior you want. And there they were very much set up to, to you know, provide motivation and, yeah. to just do whatever it took mm-hmm. to, to get the profitable idea. You You mentioned that you never were able to speak to him in person and you at the at the very end of the book you write very very movingly about approaching him at that auction at Christie's and sort of the way that he interacted with you and you never really got him to say anything substantive on the record did you when you first started even conceiving of this project did you expect that did you think you'd never talk to him and he wouldn't talk to you did you sort of structure your work around that it was quite clear just from the situation that it, it was a really um, unlikely scenario, that his lawyers were going to allow him to sit down with an investigative journalist who's <laughs> going to ask all sorts of uncomfortable questions. So it was very clear, yes, this mm-hmm. was not going to be an access book. Now, there are stories that are access stories, and those are worthy, too, in their own way. But no, this was a story I was going to have to put together um, through more creative, you know, <laughs> Uh, a lot, lot harder work, and and that was intimidating for sure. Now, I of course hoped he he might at some point come around, or I thought, oh, if this resolves in his favor, he he would have an argument to to say his piece or to explain why things were not the way they appeared from the outside. Um, but I knew it was unrealistic, and in general, he's he's a very press shy person anyway. So um, that's under the best of circumstances. So when he had all these swirling legal clouds over him. Um, you know, I knew it was unlikely to happen, but I did keep trying and his people did say to me several times, um, you know, maybe (laughs) they never quite said no, (laughs) but, but, um, I did feel by the end of the process, uh, that I had to at least make one pitch to him face to face. And it was very scary to be perfectly honest. I knew he was going to be at this art auction. Um, and I thought that's my opportunity. I can just go in there and just you know, make my appeal to him directly. And at least I can say, he, no, he said no to me. He can't just pretend he didn't get my request or, mm-hmm. you know, ignore me. I, I, I want him to just tell me to my face. Do you know if he's read the book? I do not. <laughs> so in 2016, Stephen Cohen signed this agreement with um, the Securities and Exchange Commission that prevented him from investing other people's money. But at the end of last year, that expired. So... What's been happening with him in 2018 so far? As of the beginning of this year, he was free and clear to start managing other people's money again, which is astonishing when you look at it in context. And there was a lot of speculation going into that just about how much money he was likely to be able to raise, whether investors or people who manage pension funds would be willing to hand over you know, their investors' money to him given his record. And... Um, uh, there was just a telling moment when I was speaking at a hedge fund conference uh, in the last year, and we did an anonymous poll of everyone in the audience and asked them whether they would consider giving him money again. And I think 30% of the people present said they would. And in fact, he has raised several billion dollars, not as much as he had hoped. But there have been some people, I think mostly wealthy individuals who probably have a long connection to him, mm-hmm. have given him money. So he he's operating a hedge fund again, as far as we know. Um, I don't know how he's been doing. I mean, there have been some reports that his returns haven't been that great. But people, at least some people, appear willing to give him another chance. And um, Interesting. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of his astonishing success before? Or do you think that it's just because of a personal connection? He made a lot of people very, very wealthy the first time around. And a lot of investors who put money with him sort of early in his hedge fund career became unimaginably rich, partly as a result of how well he did. And 
I think those people have a long memory and some loyalty to him. And I also think there's a sort of general desperation on the part of certain investors to find reliable returns. You can't you can't really earn anything on money you have sitting uh, in your bank account because interest rates have been very low. The stock market has gone up a lot, but a lot of people are concerned it's it's going to fall back down and, you know, given what's going on politically, anything could happen. So people are just desperate for a sure thing. And everyone has this this memory of Steve Cohen being a trading wizard. And he's taken all sorts of steps to try and improve oversight of his fund. And he's hired all sorts of compliance professionals. He's installed a special surveillance system to scan employee emails. So he's done a whole bunch of things. I think he really wants to prove that he can do it totally clean. What what is he scanning their emails for? This may make you laugh, but uh, one big thing that compliance officials do at at financial companies uh, is, is look for certain keywords in employee communications like chat logs or emails, keywords that might indicate that they're doing something they're not supposed to do, like mm. insider trading or mm. black edge or, um, hey, I got some, I got a sure thing, you know, so that, so they'll plug in these keywords. But wow. of course, it's a very clumsy way of catching a lot of crime. And people who are, who are engaged in different kinds of, you know, securities fraud, they, they get pretty good at concealing what they're doing from the people who are supposed to be monitoring and making sure they're, you know, being lawful. Uh, but so so this is the kind of thing that he's been trying to kind of improve at his company. That's so interesting you, because you talk in the book a lot about the ways that they sort of skirted anything that might have fallen into that category, right? That they were keeping private notes from email accounts that were no one and they weren't doing it at home and all of the hard drives were stored in their, you know, in their houses and all that kind of thing. You would think that they would know the keywords and would be like, well, of course I'm not going to use them. In the course of of all the legal cases surrounding SAC Capital, you know, there were many, many examples of instant message logs and email communications that the the prosecutors unearthed uh, that we were able to look at. And a lot of them said, um, let's discuss this live. And Steve Cohen specifically uh, would always say, I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I don't want to talk about this over email. You know, come and see me. He was very careful. And, uh, you know, these people aren't fools. Mm -hmm. So you uh, wrote, I think, at the end of the book that since he had, you know, not been allowed to invest other people's money, he'd actually been making, Stephen Cohen had been making more money than ever before. There was, like, one year he made, like, $2.5 billion or something. Um, And you also mentioned that um, when Trump was elected, there were people from his company, which is now called Point72, who were advising the um, incoming Justice Department. And I'm curious if there are any connections between Point72 or Stephen Cohen and the Trump administration now. Well, one thing that's been really notable about Trump in general, of course, is his incredible embrace of Wall Street. And as has been pointed out, he campaigned on this populist message and he was against the fat cats. He specifically said he was going to go after hedge funds for their low tax rate loophole that they enjoy. I mean, they they on the vast chunks of their earnings, they often pay lower taxes than those of us who earn a salary. It's just sort of maddening. This is the Warren Buffett and his secretary axiom, right? Famously, yes. Warren Buffett said, my secretary pays a higher tax rate than I do, and this is wrong. And there is really no justification for it, especially in an industry where um, su- such a huge percentage of the earnings are coming in through this method that allows them to evade proper income tax. So it's kind of crazy. But of course, the hedge fund industry feels very strongly that they want to preserve this enormous advantage they have. And Trump campaigned on this promise that he was going to get rid of that. And I, I remember having a moment, I think it was in late 2016 in the summer, uh, of, of sort of intellectual bond with with. Donald Trump, uh, a rare <laughs> moment, because he went on TV and he said, the hedge funds are getting away with murder. They pay very low taxes. It's not right. I'm going to fix this. And it was one of those moments where he said something truthful, I thought. And that is part of what was appealing about him to certain people, because occasionally he does say something that's true, but it's mixed in with a lot of outrageous nonsense. So so I, there was this moment where I thought this will be very interesting if he tries to go after these people mm-hmm. and really cost them money because mm-hmm. they will not like that. So sure enough, uh, many months later, he he becomes president and immediately he started appointing 
exactly the sorts of people he had been railing against. You know, Steve Mnuchin, a former hedge fund manager, became treasury secretary. He had various billionaire corporate raiders and financiers, you know, leading the Commerce Department or advising him. Uh, Gary Cohen from Goldman Sachs became his top economic advisor. And months after that, this huge tax reform bill passes. And there is no no action taken to address the hedge fund tax loophole. So what a surprise. I know. It's really the more the more things change and the more they stay the same. It was a little disheartening. But so I, I so so I think Steve Cohen himself is not that directly political. I think uh, his real obsession in life is making money trading. I mean, those are really his only interests. However, he cares very much about his taxes and uh, like many of his colleagues. And I think uh, he has come around to appreciating the benefits he's enjoyed under President Trump. And there were many connections between them because Trump went through this process of just kind of scraping people from Wall Street to bring them into government to set his economic agenda. So there were a lot of connections to people Cohen had around him. And this is inevitable. It's a relatively small industry. And they've had such an ascendant few months with Trump of just their people getting, you know, picked up. And um, another another person who had a strong connection to Cohen was Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, who was Trump's uh, spokesperson briefly before he kind of imploded in a public scandal and was, you know, forced to leave. But Ten but he days. was also he was a longtime champion and investor uh, in Cohen's fund. So there are many links. I think Scaramucci's memoir is the book I am most looking forward to this fall. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be reading it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we also sort of wanted to ask about something else that's come up recently about um, the allegations of gender discrimination at Point 72. And you wrote a piece about this for The New Yorker recently. And we would just like to hear um, sort of your thoughts about that. And the, the as by way of background, the complaint came from a woman named Lauren Bonner. Um, and when you wrote about it in The New Yorker, you said that the behavior described in the lawsuit will, lawsuit will be familiar to many women who have worked in finance, an industry that remains overwhelmingly male. Can you just talk a little bit about some of those behaviors and the background there? Watching the whole uh, Me Too sort of movement emerge has been really interesting for me uh, professionally because I have been covering women on Wall Street for quite a few years. And uh, in some respects, companies in Silicon Valley and in the media, they're going through this big public reckoning right now. You know, a lot of Wall Street women are watching this with great interest because they have been going through these struggles for decades. And uh, in the 90s, uh, um, all the top Wall Street investment banks had huge gender cases filed against them. And... Um, I mean, the kinds of behavior that women were complaining about would would still seem shocking now. I mean, you know, some of these um, investment banks were literally uh, run like fraternity houses, and really the the seedier ones had strippers coming in on people's birthdays, and and women would be told, "You're female. You're not going to be paid what your male colleagues are paid." And constant sexual banter and jokes and inappropriate touching and all sorts of stuff. So so the women of Wall Street, uh, especially ones of a certain generation, are kind of battle-hardened. And uh, they went through a lot. And so after all these cases in the late 90s, um, a lot of those firms had to pay huge monetary settlements to their female employees, and they had to make changes. Um, now, that's not to say discrimination doesn't still happen there. It absolutely does, and so does harassment. But it did become a little less overt. Uh, they had to just set up proper HR departments. They had to at least, on paper, follow all the uh, equity, pay equity laws and so on. They're still terribly difficult environments for women to work in, and women are still very um, underrepresented and often paid less than the men. But it did get a little better. The sort of external fraternity house environment calmed down a little bit. So um, one thing I did notice, though, is that Hedge funds are a little bit outside of the mainstream of Wall Street, even though they've become enormously powerful uh, and and hold a lot of money and influence in the industry. So, so some of them are a little, you know, kind of off the beaten track. And often you would find that there were very few women working at these these multi billion dollar hedge funds. You know, you might find one or two or zero. And um, as I was reporting uh, my book, I, I, it was notable that there were very few women who came up at all, mm -hmm. other than wives or girlfriends in the background. I mean, all of these people accused of 
inappropriate behavior, you know, in their stock trading and insider trading and cultivating sources of illegal information and all this paying huge bonuses. These are all young men for the most part. So I thought that was really notable. And when Lauren Bonner filed her case, um, you know, it, it was really textbook what she described. I mean, she described sexual jokes. She had, she, she said the president of Point 72 had uh, the word pussy on a whiteboard in his office, which she was very deeply offended by. Um, and there were just constant sexual innuendo and cracks. And then she had very detailed information about her compensation. And she said, this was my performance. This was what I was, is what I was paid. A more junior men with less experience were hired and put above me at a higher salary. And it, it, it really, you know, it was, it was shocking, but yeah. not surprising. Could you talk a little bit, if you're comfortable, about your personal background? Like, do you consider yourself a woman of Wall Street? I know you started out in the industry, right? My career started on Wall Street uh, totally by accident. I, um, after I graduated, I, I, I graduated with a master's degree in media studies, a very impractical degree, but, um, but super fun and interesting to do at Stanford. And I came back to New York and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And my, my parents were a little anxious, to be honest. <laughs> and, um, and I was temping a couple days a week uh, just to make money while I was kind of in, and I was interviewing for media jobs, but not necessarily in journalism per se. And I was sent into a small hedge fund to, to work a couple days a week. And this was a, a fund uh, run by a woman, uh, which is very rare, um, as we, you know, as we've previous addre previously addressed. And, uh, this woman, um, had spent her whole career at a big bank and had recently started her own firm, and she took a liking to me, and she convinced me to stay there. So I spent five years working for her and then a slightly larger fund as an analyst. And that was obviously a really helpful background to have in going into a book project like this because I really understood that world. I understand the hedge fund world. I understand Wall Street. I understand their their language. Um, you know, the, the the numbers part of it, you know, how they're paid, what they care about. I mean, all that was just very intuitive to me. But uh, because I did work most of the time, I was working at this small firm for a woman boss, I never really experienced the just uh, pure male testosterone, big investment bank, brokerage firm environment mm -hmm. that a lot of these other women have. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I can't say... <laughs> I, I feel very lucky that I, I was able to avoid having to clock years in a place where people were leaving condoms on my uh, computer keyboard. I really don't know how I would have handled that, to be honest. A lot of these women just would suffer quietly because there was sort of no recourse for them. I think that would have been really hard for me. You you mentioned, I think, in a piece you wrote in the New Yorker, maybe back in November, that because of all these big lawsuits that you were describing in the '80s and '90s, that other industries, you know, Hollywood and Silicon Valley, can actually learn a lot from Wall Street. And I was curious if you could elaborate that, because you know, if you take like the gender discrimination at Point Seventy Two or other things you were describing, like it doesn't seem like Wall Street has learned from Wall Street. So what what can Wall Street learn from itself? I think one of the lessons of the Wall Street gender cases is that it is extremely difficult to address this problem. And Wall Street still has not addressed the problem, even though they did on paper address the problem. So I, I guess I, I really want to remind people of that, that um, even though some of the more outrageous, overt things did go away, the underlying problem which is the sort of economic disparity between men and women, the ways that they're treated differently, the ways that their careers progress or the opportunities they're given differ. Uh, those are really profound and they haven't really improved that much on Wall Street. And people, people ask me a lot about Silicon Valley too, which I've reported on too in this regard. And, um, and even, even at these firms where top people have been pushed out or asked to leave because of harassment allegations, uh, you know, until those companies really make a commitment to paying and treating their their female employees and the members of other underrepresented groups, I should add, uh, equally, th there aren't going to be any changes until they they publish everyone's salary and really show they're paying everyone the same. They're paying the women the same. There's not a discount on someone who walks in the door because of what they look like, because that's often what happens. You walk in the door and who the, the person hiring is like, okay, 
X 30%, you know, off what I would have to pay a white guy to do this. So that is a huge problem. And, and all of these other um, issues like harassment, for example, stem from that. They stem from this basic economic disparity that happens. Mm. So Wall Street still has a long way to go to addressing that. And so does, so does the rest of the corporate world and Hollywood, uh, obviously. Do you feel, this may be a bit of a leap, but do you feel like that sort of underlying toxic culture that's kind of encouraging this masculine bravado also contributes to the unethical behavior that a lot of these people are engaging in? Well, I found uh, certainly in these insider trading rings that I was reporting on for this book, there was a lot of very clubby behavior and clannish kind of behavior going on. A lot of the people, I mean, uh, they were almost all male. Uh, and a lot of them had known one another for a long time. And there was just, there were often very few people around in a position to question what was going on and say, guys, like, is this such a good idea? Or maybe this is a little risky. We shouldn't do that. And uh, this was notable to me too in the financial crisis because, um, so much of what went wrong with the financial crisis was groupthink. It was all of these banks, um, investment banks, regional small banks, mortgage firms, they all just sort of behaved as if real estate prices could never go down and they were going to continue just milking it and, and creating all these securities and putting false ratings on them and selling them and just getting you know wealthier and wealthier from this while this bubble blew up and then it exploded. Nobody ever considered the possibility that things that go up can come down. And, and, and there was just this tremendous amount of like sort of homogeneous, unquestioning groupthink. And yes, it was mostly men. There were a few women scattered around. But I, I noticed this after the crisis. It was just one male CEO after another sort of having to go and you know apologize to Congress or whatever. Of course, none of them um, went to jail or even faced the possibility of that. I think if there had been more women and also other sorts of people from different backgrounds in the mix, I think there would have been less of that groupthink. I think it would have been really helpful. I think a lot of them had a similar worldview and similar goals, which were short-term profit-driven and not a lot of people thinking about the longer-term repercussions of what they were doing. Well, that's actually kind of an interesting segue. I, both, I think both Aiden and I are slightly obsessed with Matthew Martoma. And about um, speaking of people who engage in unethical behavior in a sort of way that makes you wonder what was going on inside their minds, um, can you just talk a little about, bit about your relationship with him um, and maybe give the listeners some background about who he was and why he's integral to the story? He was at the center of this whole story. He, he was the um, person charged by the government with the largest insider trading crime that they have brought charges over, uh, possibly ever. And uh, he was a portfolio manager for several years at SAC Capital, Steve Cohen's fund. He was alleged uh, over a couple of years period to have uh, cultivated a relationship with a, a very highly decorated doctor who was involved in high profile drug trial research. Uh, Martoma you know, cultivated a relationship with this guy you know, tried to get information out of him about this this um, kind of highly anticipated Alzheimer's drug trial that a lot of Wall Street investors were betting on by buying and selling the stocks of the drug companies. So Martoma, you know, worked on this doctor for months and months to try and learn things about this trial that he was not supposed to know. And um, the story, Martoma's story was really heartbreaking uh, in so many ways for me. Um, he... He was really, um, his family was an immigrant success story. His parents were from India. They'd immigrated to the U.S. They'd worked incredibly hard to provide a better life for their their children. Uh, you have to talk about the plaque. <laughs> I know, it's brutal. <laughs> well, one thing I should say is that my father uh, is from India. And I, I have a, a deeper understanding of this culture, I think, than some people because I grew up with a very demanding um, South Asian dad who really expected like high grades in school and he had a very set ideas of of what what you know I should do with my my life my sister and I and and um so so I as I learned about Martoma's family I I really related to his his struggles in some way because um 
you know, his parents were very strict and they, they nothing but the absolute best grades, best schools, all the top um, academic awards, nothing less than that was going to satisfy his parents. And, and he was a national merit scholar and, you know, extracurricular activities out the wazoo and really all straight A's and A pluses. And um, when he applied to college, he applied to Harvard, but he did not get in. And um, he ended up going to Duke, which, Pretty yeah, bad. really shabby, <laughs> yeah. pathetic failure. Nobody, I don't know any parents who'd be happy to have their child go to Duke. No, it's Shameful, crazy. frankly. Yeah, it's really, really, he should be embarrassed. It's crazy. So he obviously st was extremely successful, got into Duke. Not an easy thing to do, but his dad was crushed by this Harvard rejection. And, um, you know, later we learned that uh, he'd given his son a plaque saying to the son who broke his father's heart. <laughs> Jeez. And it's just, when I learned about that, I, I thought uh, that had to be a joke. I mean, that just is cruel. But so this is the kind of pressure Martoma was under from his family. And I don't bring that up to excuse what he did. However, uh, I couldn't ignore that. It was, it was present. I mean, it was sort of obvious um, that that was partly driving him. <clears throat> so ultimately what, what happened is he... He learned the confidential results of this Alzheimer drug uh, trial a week before anyone else from this doctor. Uh, he, um, he was involved in building up a very large position in these drug stocks uh, for Steve Cohen's company. And, and there was a very dramatic moment that the government sort of outlined in their case where Martoma made a call to Steve Cohen, his boss, who made all the big trading decisions at his firm, made this call on a Sunday morning. They spoke for 20 minutes. No one knows exactly what they said, but beginning on Monday morning, Steve Cohen started dumping all the shares of these drug stocks. Uh, they had almost a billion dollars worth of stock in these two companies. So they had a very big bet that things were going to go well for these two companies. And, um, so not only do they liquidate that entire position, but then they short the stocks, which, which is a total reversal. It means you're, you're borrowing the shares, you're selling them so that hopefully they'll go down and you can buy them back. Um, yeah, you make money when something fails. Basically, yes. Um, and it's risky. It's riskier than being long uh, stocks because if the, if the stock that you're short just goes up, you could potentially, your losses are potentially limitless. So it's, it, it, it takes some, you know, a strong stomach to do this. So, so this is what happens. And, um, and then, of course, the drug trial results are publicly released. And the, the uh, Alzheimer's drug was a failure. The market was stunned by this. The stocks uh, plummeted. And SEC Capital made $276 million in profits and avoided losses, which is how the government looks at it. So they avoided enormous losses by selling their stocks. And then they made profit when the, the short went down. So this is what happened, and, and um, you know, after this painstaking long investigation, uh, Martoma was arrested and charged with being involved in this. And through his entire prosecution, you know, he was this real object of mystery and fascination because I think the government really expected that he was going to flip and cooperate with them and testify against Cohen, his former boss. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in the interim between this, this huge trade, uh, which they alleged was illegal and, and the, the, you know, the arrest, you know, things had not gone well after that for Martoma and, and Cohen had ultimately fired him sort of in an insulting way. And Martoma had moved, uh, you know, he got a $9, billion, a $9 million bonus and he'd moved to Florida with his family, um, his wife and his three little children. And I think they were living well there uh, off these millions of dollars he had made uh, working for Steve Cohen. So I think the government felt, well, he's not working there anymore and he got fired and um, he has a lot to lose. He has this beautiful family and nice home and he's not going to want to go to jail. But Martoma just refused to cooperate. He refused to acknowledge any guilt. He denied all this all along, even though they had this enormous mountain of evidence against him. And he, he now sits in jail. And you came into this, to writing about this story through his trial, is that right? Yes, it was, it was the moment he was arrested that I really got interested in this because um, it was a very dramatic moment. Uh, he, um, a couple of FBI agents went down to Florida and knocked on his door and arrested him. And um, 
this was a really big deal because because it was really clear from from the moment he was arrested and the government had to file their charges. Uh, it was clear that they were trying to go after Cohen. And I I knew just from my own background in the industry that this was this was going to be a really big deal. I mean, the government does not often go after a, someone who has ten billion dollars, even though perhaps they should do that more often. They don't. So I knew this was going to be a really big sort of showdown. It was going to be a real test of of the justice system, of our, our regulatory framework, of just the general sense of fairness uh, in our economy, um, and and a matter of public importance. So that's when I really kind of jumped on the case and started following it really closely. It's also from from a literary perspective, um, it does feel like sort of the center of the book. And the way that you manage to kind of weave in these people as people and not as kind of like good, evil, very clear black and white, you know, dialectic kind of oppositional forces is really, I think, one of the things that kind of sets your book apart from a lot of nonfiction, honestly, that it feels it feels as though there's this sort of like psychological narrative and there's so much nuance to these characters. I'm really curious how you got the kind of information to be able to build them as three-dimensional people and not as sort of just black and white images um, and how you kind of reconstructed these stories with the level of detail is just amazing. Like when you think about Matthew Martoma and that, you know, the, the I want to say scene because it feels so literary of him watching the doctor present the Alzheimer's results um, to this room full of people. And you have so much sort of like internal monologue going on. Like, I'm really curious about how you constructed those things, how many voices you put together and things like that. Well, the, one of the ways that I approach sort of business journalism in general is, is to focus on the people because, you know, um, when major events happen or big scandals or, you know, corruption cases, whatever it is, there it's people doing all those things. So that's always the kind of entry point I'm interested in just as a reader and as a reporter. And, um, I mean, this story, it, it was like, um, making a beach out of one, you know, by gathering one grain of sand mm -hmm. at a time. And it was painstaking investigative reporting. And it was, um, I mean, I, I should start by saying there was an enormous uh, wealth of court documents available because there had been so many prosecutions of people, you know, at different stages of people connected to this firm and connected to Martoma. And so I went through a very elaborate process of gathering all that stuff, filing FOIA requests, you know, getting depositions, getting transcripts of things, sitting in trials and taking notes. Um, so there was an enormous sort of bedrock of all that stuff to start with. But then there was you know, there was a lot of like knocking on doors and writing letters to people and calling and begging and visiting people's alma mater and, you know, going to their childhood home and talking to neighbors. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I spent months and months calling people and, um, sometimes people would hang up on me and then I'd still, I'd write them a letter and then they'd, they'd call and say, Oh, I got your letter. And they'd forgotten that they'd hung up on me, you know, six weeks earlier. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of that. And, uh, I didn't sleep and it was very anxiety producing. Um, but gradually, you know, the picture started to form and, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff I was not able to learn, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I did not get to, to, to go and spend time with Martoma's family. I would have been so interested to do that. Uh, I had to, I had to work with what I had mm -hmm. and, um, and I certainly studied also other, uh, nonfiction writers who I really admire who've done this, you know, and, and, um, Jim Stewart is, is one person who comes to mind because he... He is able to reconstruct incredible narratives, often just with documents. And um, it's sort of an art, you know, it's an art form practiced by other uh, journalists. And, and I had to kind of learn how to do that. Can you use that story as a microcosm, maybe? Like, how did you know what people were thinking when they were in the auditorium watching him? Like, did, did you talk to other people who were there? Did, was it from Martoma himself? Well, I would often, I mean, the auditorium scene in particular, I did. I talked to people who were present. Uh, there were other reporters who covered that event. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. I mean, there were a number of emails. I mean, I certainly got documents that weren't necessarily in the public domain as well. And I was able to read a lot of emails that people had sent. And people, you know, people would say, wow, I was really impressed by that. Or, um, And then, uh, you know, Martoma's trial was extremely interesting because um, people had to go up there. Martoma himself did not testify, but the doctor, Dr. Gilman, was sort of 
the star witness of that trial. I know. And he spent, I mean, what, what's an incredible about a trial is that prosecutors are storytellers too. And what they will do is they will walk, they want to walk the jury through the story. You know, all the, all the questions that you have as a journalist, where were you? Who was there? What were you thinking? What happened? You know, and then what happened? And then what happened next? And what happened next? So he would have people just recount the story. What were you feeling? Did you feel uncomfortable? Did you think that was weird? You know, and they would have to, you know, t tell the whole story on the stand. So, so, um, you can r construct remarkable narratives out of, you know, testimony like that. So that was also extremely helpful, particularly in the Martoma case. Um, because I think that trial was four or five weeks. You, I heard you in another interview talk about how when you first started writing about him, you didn't want to because you felt like starting it would be impossible. That is true. I had to be sort of forced to start working on this by one of my colleagues, Brian Erstadt, who is, who is a features editor at um, Business Week at the time, a very smart guy. He is the one who said to me after Martoma was arrested, he said, Sheila, this is a perfect story for you. You're a hedge fund person. You like, you know, drama and controversy. This is going to be a really big deal. Uh, and I kept saying, no, it's too difficult. And it's, it's difficult because um, it's always hard to write about kind of an active, ongoing, like criminal investigation because everyone involved is terrified of being um, charged or put in jail and you know, you, the FBI was out there trying to gather information about this case. So it's very hard to compete with the FBI and their subpoenas uh, to gather information. I mean, it's just tough. Um, that was very intimidating. I mean, Steve Cohen himself is is intimidating. His his um, his hedge fund was a very powerful, uh, you know, sort of intimidating place on Wall Street. And people were a little bit scared of him, to be honest. And people who work for him tend to have signed non-disclosure agreements. And then, um, you know, the other group of people I, I needed to, to speak to were the investigators. And they were some great characters, too, like the SEC, the FBI agents, the prosecutors. They were the ones, like, following the trail. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, were any of these people eager to talk to you? Like, did anyone ever want to see you coming? Not really. <laughs> not really. I... I I think I did explain in the book that there was a bit of a dynamic, at least on the government side, a little bit about, you know, the different groups sort of being a bit in competition with one another to get the case. You know, they all want to nail the big one and like get the get the big fish and, you know, get credit for this huge world changing case. So they there was a bit of an undercurrent of people wanting credit for the work they were putting in. And I and I was able to. <laughs> Um, capitalize on that a little bit. And, and I think I think it's helpful sometimes when you're working on a book because people, even if things are not resolved and people don't want to say something and see it in print tomorrow or that afternoon and then it screws up or alters the course of events, I mean, they don't want to do that. But if you can kind of go to somebody and say, like, I have a book contract from Random House and this book's going to come out in two or three years and this is going to be resolved, but this book is going to sit on a library shelf and be the historical record of this really significant series of events. And that was sort of the plea I would make to people. And that did work with some people. I mean, that was that was different. And I think at the time, the story was being covered so intensely by the daily press, the Wall Street Journal, the Times, Bloomberg, Reuters, uh, a bazillion blogs, you know, it was really just being hotly covered, every little detail. So they were a little weary, I think. Um, there were a lot of leaks in the investigation. They were a little weary of that, you know, some of them. But this longer-term project, the whole posterity argument did did work. And I think that is true about books. I mean, they they operate on a different level hmm. um, from, from the daily reports. They mm -hmm. kind of put the whole story together. For people who didn't read the Wall Street Journal during that time, this is how they're going to come to the story and understand why it's important. And people did get that. I mean, this is how I came to the story. Yeah, I, didn't, me too. I wasn't following it at the time, I have to be honest. So Yeah, no, I think it was funny. The kind of initial audience was very was Wall Street people or people who were obsessed with Steve Cohen and wanted to know how he made money or you know. But then it's been it's been really fun to see it expand to, to people who've never really read Wall Street books. You talk you talked earlier about how investment at SAC was driven not by long term health of a company, but by short term profits. And um you know, on the one hand, fine, right? Like that's an investment strategy and that's what investors do. On the other hand, the implications that play out in your book from that attitude are I, like, frankly chilling. And specifically the story about Matthew Martoma 
and this Alzheimer's drug, you know, really shine a light on that. I mean, you have this drug that could potentially help millions of people, right? And it's in the middle of its R&D phase. And because of a short-term interest, these people who wield unbelievable power because they have unlimited sums of money just cut it short because it doesn't work for their investment strategy that day, literally just that day. And there's a quote of Martoma telling the doctor, he says, um, the market doesn't like a drug that only helps half the population. And that reality that's implied by that sentence, I find really terrifying. I, I agree with you. I think it is chilling. And I think that is why stories like this are really important and and do sort of illuminate the way the world is and the way things are going and, and the decisions that are being made in a way that you don't normally see. It's like someone has turned on a light, a bright light in like a nightclub that's been sort of dark and suddenly you see all the, the you know, like the Gatorade bottles and the glow sticks on the floor and <laughs> How like somebody threw up over is. here. Yeah. It's really frightening. And and um, it's true. I think, I think one of the lasting impacts that hedge funds have had is that they kind of demonstrated to the world, you know, certainly to the rest of the financial industry, but I would say the whole business community and even, you know, the policy world that you can make an enormous amount of money. There can be an enormous amount of enrichment that occurs from this short-term financial speculation. Why do the hard work of investing for the long-term, of making those really difficult uh, long-term decisions when you can just have the quick payday uh, through sort of a short-term speculative thing? And, and this has come to infect the whole business community. And, um, you know, you, there are all sorts of things you could look at, but where you have this trend of private equity firms buying out struggling companies, loading them with debt, breaking them into little pieces, getting them to lay everyone off, shut all the plants, ship it all to China. These are all short-term things. It's like they want short-term return, short, short-term profits, anything that's going to take a longer time, time horizon to, to build and develop, anything that's going to take that harder work is much less appealing to people who are looking for that. And so, um, yes, companies now have to make decisions, you know, with this in their mind. Like, what is this going to look like next week or next quarter? And um, you see them doing that all the time. They don't want to have employees anymore. You know, they want to shed as much as possible uh, so they can just keep delivering to Wall Street. And that has repercussions throughout our society. And, and as we have these debates about income inequality, and how that has influenced people's voting patterns and led to this polarization we have. I think this is a direct cause of that, but people don't see it. It's hidden. You know, it's sort of our job to, to connect the dots for people. Well, thanks for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So that was our conversation with Sheila Kohakar. I thought it was pretty good. What'd you think? I thought it was so fascinating to be able to talk to her and hear some insider info about how this book was created. Yeah, she was really forthright. I really appreciated it. Yeah, me too. She was really forthcoming also. I feel like it was really, it was great to see sort of how the sausage got made of that book. Yeah, totally. Um, so Black Edge is available at the library on our shelves and on our app, Simply E, and we encourage you to check it out. Sheila is one of the finalists for the Bernstein Prize, like we said, and the winner is going to be announced on May 21st. Whoever wins, it's a great book, so look forward to finding out, and we'll let you know on the podcast when we know. Oh, and don't forget, listen to The Librarian is In. Subscribe on iTunes or check it out on the podcast page, nypl.org slash podcast. Great. Thanks so much for having me involved in this conversation, and thanks for listening, everybody. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself.